The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, what have we learned about the New York art market from this week's freeze fair and a fortnight of auctions? Plus, the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation creates a museum in Senegal and we look at a golden manuscript from 18th century India. I talked to the art newspaper's editor in the Americas, Ben Sutton, about the New York market in one of the biggest auction and fair periods of the year, as Freeze opens at the Shed in Hudson Yards, and we come to the end of two weeks of huge auction sales. Nicholas Fox Weber, executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, tells me about a new museum the foundation hopes to build in Senegal, with a building designed by Mariam Kamara, the Niger-based architect. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talked to Annabelle Gallup, one of the co-curators of Gold, a new exhibition at the British Library in London about the shimmering golden farmer or decree from Shah Alam II, issued to a British woman, Sophia Plowden, in India in 1789. Before all that, the art newspaper has a spring sale in which you can get a 50% discount on the complete and digital-only subscriptions. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the promo code SPRINGPOD. That's one word and all in capital letters, SPRINGPOD. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Freeze New York Art Fair opened to the public yesterday at The Shed, the cultural venue in the controversial Hudson Yards development in the city. It coincides with the second week of the big spring auction season in New York, one which has featured, among much else, a record-breaking Andy Warhol painting at Christie's last week, part of a sale of the collection of the Swiss dealers Doris and Tomas Amann, as well as the Anne Bass collection, also at Christie's, the second part of Sotheby's sale of the Maclow collection this week, and a major Jean-Michel Basquiat painting at Phillips on Wednesday. I spoke to Ben Sutton, our editor in the Americas, who spent the last two weeks immersed in auction reports to get his take on a heady fortnight. Ben, I wanted to begin by talking about Freeze. Obviously, Freeze was a London magazine, and when they launched the fair in London in 2003, I think it was, it was sort of obvious that if they even got it half right, it was going to become the major fair in London. It's different in New York because New York already had a fair ecosystem. There were some big fairs that already existed. We're now several years since it launched. Where do you see Freeze's place in that ecosystem today? Yeah, I think it's still somewhat figuring it out. I mean, this is the 10th edition of Freeze New York. Um, and for its first eight editions, it was on Randall's Island, which is this sort of a somewhat random island uh, in the East River that kind of felt exotic as a destination for the first year or two and then became mostly a pain to get to. And I think they've been forced partly by the pandemic and also partly by needing a new venue to kind of rethink their model. And I think when they first came in, they were very much operating on the same model as the longstanding New York City Fair, the Armory Show, which was really like this sort of similar to Art Basel as well, like the kind of maximalist model of, you know, 150 to 250 galleries, sort of as much as we can cram into the biggest venue we can find. And I think now that they've had to kind of rethink their model and and find a new venue, they've gone for something a little bit different that I think is going to play to their favor in the end, which is more of a kind of boutique model. Um, You know, there are only 66-something galleries participating this year. Only. Still plenty. Um, But, you know, it's it's sort of like a third of the size of what a pre-pandemic Freeze New York would have been. And I think sort of in tandem with that, the Armory Show has expanded. It's gone to a new venue as well, which is the, the Javits Center, which is New York City's sort of cavernous, enormous convention center. And they've announced... I think over it's close to 250 galleries participating in their upcoming edition. So it's interesting, you know, they, I think when freeze came in, the two fairs were very much indirect competition. They also were originally on the calendar within two months of each other. And I think now you see like this interesting realignment, at least of those two poles of the art fair landscape in New York, uh, one going sort of much smaller and, and taking up this spring slot and the armory show now happening in September keeping with the sort of like maximalist approach. But in the interim, you've also had TAFAF has come in uh, and they put on a really, a really quite gorgeous fair at the Park Avenue Armory two weeks ago. So they are kind of keeping that sort of 
off-kilter calendar happening. And then also uh, The Independent, which has been a long-time uh, sort of satellite fair, which is beginning to come into its own in a, in a pretty substantial way. Um, Elizabeth D., the director of that fair, just announced this week that they're going to launch a separate second edition to concur with the Armory Show in September, focused specifically on 20th century art. So I think there are elements of the fair landscape in New York that are still sort of shaking out. Um, Nada has come back uh, in recent years and is sort of reasserting itself as a presence for, for emerging art. And now, obviously, uh, Independent is sort of trying to move in on TAFAF's sort of modern canonical territory. So I think it's still being worked out. But if you're looking at just sort of the Armory Show and Freeze as the kind of two poles, I think there is a bit of a new equilibrium emerging with Freeze really sort of branding itself as this kind of more exclusive. I mean, the tickets just to get in are over $200. So it, I think that tells you a lot. This more exclusive package offer of, you know, 60 to 70 really like high caliber, carefully curated galleries and the Armory Show taking the more all-encompassing approach of having over 200 galleries in September. Right. And in terms of the venue, they've gone from Randall's Island to the Shed, which is not an uncontroversial space in its own right. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the Shed is an interesting one because it's challenging, I would say, space in which to look at art in an ordinary context, outside of the context of the fair. I think actually it's it's somewhat well suited to an art fair, to be perfectly honest. But the exhibitions that they've put on there, though curatorially very ambitious, pretty much across the board. And I think it's Exhibition programming is actually very strong, um, but the space itself is a very awkward and somewhat kind of cavernous and doesn't have a lot of character. So for an exhibition, it's a challenging space to work with for an artist and a curator, but I think it actually lends itself quite well to an art fair. Um, it's really spacious. Obviously, there's, you know, there's, especially in the main floor, there's quite a lot of natural light. It's sort of designed to move a lot of people through the space. Um, so I think in a weird way, it's sort of found its calling with Freeze New York but is sort of diametrically opposed to Freeze's longtime space, which was this sort of like bespoke tent on the waterfront on Randall's Island. So it's, I mean, I guess you could make the argument it's a bespoke shed, so it's not that different, <laughs> and it's right on the river. Um, but in any case, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a surprising move. And I think for the shed, which is sort of still trying to figure out what its identity is, to be associated with this major brand in, in Freeze is a boost to its standing. On the other hand, it's sort of doubling down on its perception as a kind of commercial space. Um, and so that's sort of a, an interesting tension. Indeed. And of course, it's in Hudson Yards, which there's no love lost between New Yorkers and Hudson Yards, right? Does, is, is that thought at all? Is there any sense in which New Yorkers have embraced Hudson Yards in any way? Not in my experience. I should qualify that by admitting that I avoid it like the plague. So it could be that there are New Yorkers there every day, just lounging in the sun and, and loving it. But to my knowledge, that has not changed. I think the shed is somewhat mindful of that and is very careful in branding itself and presenting itself solely as the shed and not like, you know, the cultural center of Hudson Yards or some something like that. Right. Um, they sort of seem to try to keep a very separate identity. But no, I think, I think Hudson Yards is still very much uh, a kind of problematic Space. I mean, obviously, the centerpiece, the large public art gesture of the complex, um, the vessel by Thomas Heatherwick, has been shut down repeatedly and is still shut down. And the office spaces, you know, there are many towers of office space, which is a very tricky proposition right now, while New York is still very much dealing with uh, the pandemic. You know, there are luxury apartments, but that serves uh, not necessarily actual New Yorkers. Uh, the whole project was bankrolled in part because of some crazy districting where they were able to take a whole bunch of government money that should have been allocated to projects in Harlem. And the developer, Stephen Ross, was a somewhat significant Trump supporter. So um, there's really a lot going against it in the minds of New Yorkers. And I think Freeze and The Shed have quietly done a very good job of kind of distancing themselves from, from Hudson Yards. So tell us about the fair then. You've, you've been in, it's been open for a couple of days to VIPs, press, etc. What's, what's your experience been? I think it's, it's good. I mean, I think there was no sort of overarching narrative or theme that I could see. I think there's a lot of very strong work by women artists. There's a lot of, in the frame sector especially, which is the sector devoted to younger galleries, there's a lot of really strong presentations by galleries, especially from Latin America and New York. 
This was somewhat the same case last year. It was really sort of like the first fair out of the pandemic in New York last year. And it feels the same way this year that there aren't any sort of really conspicuous and showy gestures. I mean, you know, in years past, you would get Zwerner or Gagosian bringing a massive coons or, you know, something that would really sort of like was the gravitational center of conversation and actual foot traffic at the fair. There's nothing exactly like that. The, I think the closest thing, to my mind at least, is this, um, is again at Gagosian, they have uh, a solo booth devoted to Albert Olin. And um, in addition to a number of very, very large paintings on the walls, they have these vending machines that are selling a coffee-tea hybrid drink <laughs> that Albert Olin had some hand in developing and crafting the branding for. And so there's... At least yesterday, there was a perpetual line of people waiting to get these little special tokens that they could put into the vending machine to get their Albert Olin coffee tea, I believe it was called, right. coffee coffee and tea drink. And how much did it cost anybody who wanted a coffee tea? To my knowledge, it was free. You just had to wait and, and receive a token and then go immediately spend it. So if you have the time and if you can pay the $250 to get into the fair, then you can get a free coffee tea. Um, <laughs> and there's I saw that for instance Zverner have done a sort of Carol Beauvais booth yeah. solo booth and that looked very seductive from pictures yeah that's quite beautiful um, it's a sort of bright orange booth all the sculptures are bright orange and, and most of them are hung on the wall quite high so it just creates this really beautiful space and that like the Gagosian booth is kind of in the showpiece space of the shed which is this six story high atrium uh, that they unfortunately have sold the naming rights to and the person who got them has the last name McCourt so it sounds like it's part of a McDonald's um, <laughs> but uh, that is kind of this this very towering really quite stunning space um, and so the, both those booths look look pretty stunning right. in that context. Right. And, and and obviously you can tell a sort of fair where the galleries really feel it matters from one where it seems less important because you get, in, you know, in, in a bad fair, you get lots of phoned in booths, which feel like the stock the galleries found down the back of a radiator in the back room of the gallery. But yeah. but how does it feel in terms of that? Does it look like the galleries are prioritising, you know, top works from their major artists? Are there lots of solo booths, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think gallerists have really put a lot of emphasis on this fair. Um, there's not a lot of the, yeah, what you're referring to is sort of like the freshest work by each artist in our stable. Um, and that's as much thought as we're going to put into this. There's a lot of, of care. And I think to the point that we were talking about earlier, I think it reflects Freeze's approach of wanting to make this really like a boutique fair and a really sort of, for lack of a better phrase, like curated experience. I think there is really an emphasis on bringing not just like the best work by each artist, but a a really like considered presentation. And so there are a lot of solo booths. Um, I mean, obviously the Albert Olin and Carol Beauvais that we just discussed. Pace has um, Latifa Etchak, who has has a pavilion at Venice as well right now. Um, they have a big solo booth of her paintings that are quite stunning as well, right next to Gagosian and Enzwerner. Yeah, so there there is quite a lot of that. Um, Hausenworth has a big uh, Charles Gaines solo booth. So you can tell that there's been a lot of thought and a lot of production has gone into these booths. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that speaks to just how important those galleries feel at the fairs. And of course, at the fairs, we always get the press releases in which the galleries will say how well they've done and everything else. But you can also, to a certain extent, pick up a vibe from gallerists as to how well it's doing. Is, are you getting a sense that it's been a successful fair? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I think, you know, I heard a collector uh, who had only gone through the first floor of the fair towards the middle of the day yesterday, sort of complaining that, you know, everything had already been sold and like, they, you know, there wasn't really anything to, to look at to consider because none of it was actually available. And it certainly had that energy. You know, I think we've come out of this moment of, you know, reduced capacity events and, and just people being sort of somewhat cautious. And I think, at least at the moment, that is not the case. And I, it really felt like there was a, a real sort of crowd energy yesterday. I mean, the, the aisles were very, very quickly, very full. Um, and I think there seemed to be a very kind of earnest desire to be seen and to be collecting. And by all accounts, it, it was a, at least yesterday, was a very strong start to the fair. 
Okay, um, let's talk about auctions then. I should say in advance that we're going to talk in dollars and also <laughs> we're talking on Thursday morning, Ben's time. So right. the event at Sotheby's, the now sale this evening has not happened yet. So, mm-hmm. But we'll talk about what has happened. There's been a lot that's happened. Let's talk about the work which ahead of the fortnight of auctions attracted the most attention. That's the Andy Warhol shot Sage Blue Marilyn. Yes. It did do what it was expected to do and break all records for a 20th century artist. Yeah, there's an interesting dynamic it feels like playing out this month uh, at the New York sales of of kind of classic canonical modernism, by most standards, living up to the hype um, that the auction houses are building around it. And then the sort of continuing sort of meteoric rise of of certain artists in the contemporary sales. And so I I feel like the the Warhol Maryland really set the stage for that when it sold for... um, 195 million. It had been estimated to sell for around 200 million. And I think there was some almost disappointment that it quote unquote only sold for, for 195 million. But, you know, as I think one of the Christie's specialists put it after the sale, like sort of step back and consider, you know, what $195 million is. That's still a very impressive sale. So yeah, I think it was pretty pretty impressive that they were able to to do that, especially because, you know, we're in a, a moment in the financial markets and in the economy in the U.S. that is not a moment of wild abandon and optimism. I mean, you know, though the economy is doing well, everybody is worried about inflation. The stock market is in disarray. You know, tech stocks are, are crashing. So it's not by any means this moment of sort of unchecked optimism. And so I think, in especially in that context, um, the way that this week and last week's sales have gone is actually pretty impressive, although maybe it just speaks to how well the rich are able to protect their funds from headwinds. <laughs> Indeed, that's a good point. The thing about the Warhol was that it was in a sale of works from the collection of Doris and Thomas Amann, the sibling dealers mm-hmm. from Europe. Yeah. It was an interesting sale because it didn't have any guarantees. And one of the things that we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast, actually, is that guarantees have tended to take some of the drama out of sales. I know you weren't at that sale, but I know Judd Tully was. Was there a sense in which the lack of guarantees did indeed produce a certain drama? Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And you see that, I think, play out also this week in the uh, the Maclow sale, which sort of lacked fireworks because the entire thing was guaranteed. Um, I I think that level of uncertainty or that degree of the possibility that something might not sell or that might sell drastically under its estimate does, I think, pique interest in collectors who might think, uh, you know, this is an opportunity to get something that maybe I wouldn't be able to get in another context. I think that was evident to some extent in the Maclow sale as well, which again was entirely guaranteed, but was at a such a lower price point from the previous Maclow sale. And I think that kind of brought a bit of a sense of competition. You know, when you're dealing with $80 million paintings, there's only a few dozen people in the world who are going to show up and bid on that. Whereas if it's, even if it's only a $20 million painting, that opens up the, the pool of potential bidders significantly. And I think, I think that played out uh, at the Maclow sale. And I think, I think you're right that the, the lack of guarantees in the Amman sale was, was definitely a factor. Yeah. Indeed. And and you mentioned about, you know, the sort of canonical modernist painters and, and artists. Um, another one, of course, is Picasso. And there was a 1932 painting. So a sort of classic period. I mean, one of the things I'm noticing is lots of classic period works happening over this fortnight. You had the Warhol Marilyn from the mid 60s. You've got this Picasso from 1932. You know, 1932 was the subject of the entire exhibition at Tate Modern because it was that <laughs> great a year for Picasso. So, right. so you get a sense that it's a week in which the auction houses really are pulling out all the stops. And there was this Picasso at Sotheby's, which was one of the big sales of this week. Yeah. To your point, I I think you're right that sort of the success of canonical modernist works in the last two weeks, you know, really speaks to the importance that the auction houses place on the New York sales. And it really does feel like these are the big sales of the year kind of across the world. Um, And I think all the auction houses, even Phillips, I mean, last night's Phillips sale was in some measure, a pretty huge success for them. And they were really handling some works that in years past might have turned up at Sotheby's or Christie's. So I think it's really been an incredibly high caliber uh, couple of weeks in terms of not only the works, but also the collections that the the auction houses have landed. I mean, you know, we've talked about the Maclow sale. We talked about Amon. There was also the Ann Bass collection, which sort of, you know, lot per lot, though it was a relatively small sale, was an incredibly valuable and successful sale. So I, I think auction houses have gotten very good not only at 
you know, offering the right package to land those consignments. Uh, and obviously guarantees are a part of that, but also the kind of marketing muscle to, to make us care, you know, that the macro sale is happening and who are the macros and why should we care? And I think they've done a very effective job of making us care about the aura of Ann Bass, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned the Philips sale there and the, and the big lot was the Basquiat. And again, classic period Basquiat from 1982. Yeah, yeah. And that, that painting is enormous. I mean, I remember it was on view at Peter Brandt's foundation on the Lower East Side in Walter Demiria's former studio um, a couple of years ago in this huge show of Basquiat's. And in addition to this one, the, that $110 million one, also owned by the same Japanese collector who was selling it last night, uh, were on view. And it's just, it's hard to overstate how enormous the painting that was sold last night is. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of mural scale. It's pretty impressive. And I think that also sort of makes it a tricky proposition for a collector because, you know, you need the you need the real estate for something like that. And uh, to see that it exceeded its estimate, you know, pretty substantially, I, I think it's sort of on demand estimate or on request estimate was around 70 million and it sold for upwards of 80. So I think that's a real testament, again, to, to that sort of strength of what we think of as sort of canonical post-war art. And I think it also fuels this kind of like interesting power dynamic between Warhol and Basquiat being kind of these two forces of the art market to come out of New York. To see them sort of still very much dominating the auction landscape is interesting. Yeah, it is indeed. And you mentioned that there are some artists who are sort of a bit stratospheric in the art market, contemporary artists. What were you thinking of there? I mean, there are quite a few, um, especially sort of younger women artists who are really seeing an incredible surge in art market demand. And, And some of them you could argue, you know, seeing their work show up at, at auction when they're still quite young is actually going to be somewhat poisonous for their market. There's that old dynamic of, of kind of people flipping their work and setting expectations for, for their prices unreasonably high and what that can do for an artist in their 20s. I think the most sort of closely watched, I guess, artist in that rubric would be uh, Anna Wyant. The constant sort of reference point for her work is John Curran. There are these sort of like contemporary takes on old masters, at least broadly speaking, and they tend to be, you know, very finely detailed and rendered portraits of women or domestic scenes. Um, and she last week, I believe, became the youngest artist ever to be picked up by Kagosian. There's some kind of backroom narrative to that, which is also that she and Larry Kagosian were dating, maybe still will be dating. In any case, she is now represented by Gagosian Gallery, and that all three of the auction houses had works by her lined up for their contemporary evening sales. And I believe Christie's set a, a new record for her work last week. And she's, you know, in her 20s and not that recently out of, uh, out of art school. So there's definitely a kind of a certain level of speculation there. And I think it's it's sort of a continuation of the the fascination with figurative painting that we've seen play out over most of the past decade. But, you know, it, it's interesting to see that that really that dynamic still continues. And you see, you know, other artists like Cher Hughes or Jennifer Packer. I mean, it seems to be a dynamic that's not going anywhere. You know, I know, um, you know Phillips had a big Dana Schutz painting last night. I mean, that fixation on figurative painting is is not going anywhere. And the current focus of that seems to be predominantly women artists and artists of color. And I know, I know Sotheby's, for instance, has made a big deal of the fact that their major uh, contemporary art sale that is happening tonight at the now is, I think, the largest share of women artists they've ever had in an evening sale, 58% right. women. So that's significant. I mean, it still feels fraught, but it's significant. I wanted to end the auction bit by talking about a story which I think even for the most cynical of us, seems like a good story, (laughs) which is about Ernie Barnes. And Ernie Barnes is an artist who I didn't really know who he was, I have to say. He's much more of a significant figure in American culture, it seems to me. You you tell us who who Ernie Barnes is. Yeah, so Ernie Barnes was a former professional football player. That's American football. And after his career in the NFL, he took up painting and became sort of this celebrity athlete crossover artists kind of before that was, you know, a dynamic. I think, you know, now the, this concept of like a, a celebrity taking up art as a hobby and being kind of showered with praise and interest for it uh, is a little more familiar, but he was really way ahead of the game on that. Um, and so he, he became this fairly famous and successful painter of these very kind of dynamic figurative scenes tends to be sort of these like 
celebratory group scenes. Um, the most famous one, which is the one that sold at Christie's uh, most recently, Sugar Shack, is probably his most famous painting. And it's it's one of those scenes that I think in the U.S. you have seen it in so many places that it is familiar, even if you may not know that it's called Sugar Shack or that it's by Ernie Barnes. It's on the cover of a Marvin Gaye album. It was the image that was underneath the credits uh, of a very popular television show, Good Times. So it, it's sort of been out there in the kind of ether of visual culture for a very long time. And it, when it came up to auction, I think it had an estimate of $150,000 to $200,000 and in the end sold for a staggering $15 million, which I think is really a, a testament to just the level of, of interest in something that was so iconic and so... So familiar. I mean, you know, the, the collector who bought it, who's a, a television executive from Texas, uh, Bill Perkins, talked about how, you know, this was a piece of history that he kind of grew up seeing. And, you know, the opportunity to, to own it was just so appealing that even when the bidding had gone to 50 times the highest, he couldn't he couldn't stop and he had to have it. So I think that really spoke to just how how thoroughly kind of ingrained in in the popular imagination that particular artwork is and and ernie barnes's work in general yeah indeed and there's a story relating to ernie barnes at freeze right there is so while walking around yesterday at the fair i noticed that andrew kreps which is a a new york-based gallery had uh, an ernie barnes work on paper uh it's a scene of a, a family kind of playing basketball um very sort of simple lines but a really kind of beautiful heartwarming and very like economically rendered scene and it's sort of like in the corner of their booth and they're not really sort of drawing a ton of attention to it. But it was striking coming out of last week's record sale that there would be a, an Ernie Barnes. And so my colleague, uh, Daniel Casti, our, our deputy art market editor, went and spoke to the gallery and they revealed that they will actually be representing the Ernie Barnes estate going forward. And so I guess part of what makes that interesting is Ernie Barnes, because he was this celebrity athlete artist, who crossed over into the art world, but in a very kind of commercial way in his lifetime, never really worked with a gallery, never had representation in a formal sense, never had a kind of a champion who was sort of ingrained within the conventional art market and art world. And so his work has sort of languished to some extent since his death. And I think the auction last week, you know, in retrospect, will sort of look like the sudden kind of emergence of, of Ernie Barnes back into the art market. And I think Andrew Kreps is sort of very keenly jumping in as early as possible and taking on that estate, which I think will be, if that sale was any indication, will be hugely successful. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how museums react at this point, of course. Yeah, and I think, I mean, museums in the US, I think currently are very interested in complicating the narrative of post-war American art beyond the sort of abstract expressionism to minimalism, to neo-expressionism, to pop art, to, you know, the sort of plurality of movements we have today. And I think somebody like Ernie Barnes fits really well into that idea of telling multiple stories of post-war American art and and tracking, you know, figurative painting, which didn't go anywhere. It just stopped being the thing that gallerists in Soho wanted to sell. And so I I think a figure like Ernie Barnes will really find a good place in that narrative. So I hope, like you said, there is a very heartwarming element to the story. And I think the quote-unquote rediscovery of Ernie Barnes by curators and by gallerists and by collectors is encouraging. Well, thank you, Ben, for this roundup. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have an opportunity to sort of step back and take stock of all that's happened because it's been a whirlwind two weeks. You can read all our auction reports from the past two weeks and our coverage of Freeze New York on the website or our app for iOS and Android, which you can get from the App Store or Google Play. Coming up, we hear about the Albers Foundation's proposed museum in Senegal and about an 18th century mogul manuscript. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. In a digital initiative called the Shadows Project, a group of Ukrainian students are fighting back against what they perceive as the Russian leader Vladimir Putin's cultural assault against Ukraine. Among the group's activities is a campaign to get international museums to recognise the Ukrainian heritage of the avant-garde artist Kazimir Malevich, who's often described simply as Russian. One of the students, Katerina Bushatsky, says that highlighting Ukrainian heritage and cultural history is part of winning the war against Russia. She asks, how can you defend a country if you don't know what that country stands for. 
a painting by Pablo Picasso that was marked for seizure by the government of the Philippines in 2014, was spotted hanging on the wall of Imelda Marcos's home in the Filipino city of San Juan in footage released by the family this week. Picasso's Reclining Woman 4 is among the more than 200 works of art Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos acquired while they were in power, using money siphoned out of the Philippines to bank accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere to fund the family's lavish lifestyle. Their son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., nicknamed Bongbong, won a landslide presidential election victory last week, and the Picasso, or possibly a copy of it, was pictured in the background as he celebrated his victory with his mother. And finally, Jelaine Tawadros has been appointed the new director of the Whitechapel Gallery in East London, replacing Ivana Blaswick, who stepped down earlier this year after 20 years in the post. Tawadros has been chief executive of DAX, the Design and Artist Copyright Society, since 2009, and was the founding director of the Institute of International Visual Arts or INIVA in London, which opened in 1994. She's particularly championed black British women artists, organising the recent career survey of this year's Turner Prize nominee Ingrid Pollard at the MK Gallery in Milton Keynes and contributing to the catalogue of Life Between Islands, the hugely successful exhibition of Caribbean British art that opened last year at Tate Britain. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, discover two remarkable auctions in the Christie's calendar. In London, the collection of the late Lord and Lady Swathling on the 27th of May will offer 170 lots, many of which were inherited by David and Lynette Montague, 4th Baron and Baroness Swathling. Highlights include Keys van Dongen's De Cavalier au Bois and Impressionist paintings by Francis Picabia. Visit Christie's London from now until the 26th of May to view the exhibition of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings, portraiture, furniture and decorative arts, antique jewellery and more. In Milan, the 20th-21st century Milan online sales take place in two parts to present a curated selection of the most sought-after Italian and international names on view from the 23rd to the 29th of May. Offering paintings, works on paper, sculptures, photographs and graphic works, highlights include Enrico Castellani, Lucio Fontana, Cristo, Vasily Kandinsky, Alghiero Boetti, Mario Schifano and Gerhard Richter, among many others. To learn more, visit christies.com. Welcome back. Now, the foundation for the great Bauhaus artists, Annie and Joseph Albers, recently announced that it will open a museum near the Senegalese city of Kaolac in 2025. Betby, as the museum will be called, will be designed by the architect Mariam Kamara, who's based in Niger, and will feature a thousand square metres of exhibitions and event spaces, community rooms and a library. It'll show contemporary and historic art from Senegal and across Africa, and perhaps most strikingly, intends to be a temporary space for repatriated African objects. It's the latest in a series series of projects in Senegal to be launched by Nicholas Fox Weber, Executive Director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation and Founder and President of Le Corsa, the Foundation's philanthropic arm, which is based in rural Senegal. I spoke to Fox Weber about the museum and what connects Senegal and these linchpins of the Bauhaus. Nick, before we talk about Senegal, could you just set the scene about the foundation itself? Because it was founded in Joseph's lifetime, wasn't it? And Annie's lifetime, of course. Correct. The Alberts Foundation was created in 1971 by Annie and Joseph and their lawyer, Lee Eastman. And it was created essentially, like many artists' foundations, to avoid major tax liability. An artist's estate would have been subject to a sizable federal income tax, but Annie was entitled as a widow to half of it tax-free and a non-profit organization to the other half. So it was created for that reason, and the goal was stated to be the revelation and evocation of vision through art. Right, and that, that's really significant, isn't it, that terminology in terms of what we're going to talk about? Because Absolutely. some foundations are very much about basically working exclusively with that artist's work and promoting it, and perhaps also promoting other contemporary art but that phrase that you just read out there it very much allows a broad interpretation of those words doesn't it yes and i must say that i hadn't yet been on the scene at that point but after joseph died i began to work all the time with annie and within a couple of years and this is significant to what we're doing now the trustees voted unanimously to give me 
full power to make financial and other decisions because they knew that the Albers' sense of values was absolutely dear to me, that I had a strong understanding, I would say, of what their values were and share those values. And so I've been able to proceed in some unusual directions. Right. Did the Albers ever go to Senegal or indeed to Africa? The Albers has never went to Africa. It's not irrelevant to me that they went to Mexico 14 times. They said that in Mexico, art was everywhere. They were very interested in non-Western countries, in places where they had that sense that art was everywhere. And of course, they were very attentive to local craft traditions in Mexico, weren't they? And I imagine that that is another thing which underpins what we're going to talk about in Senegal, this new museum. Well, the Albers has felt that good design was better than bad art. That's something I heard them say very often. So not only were they interested in craft in the sense of Peruvian textiles and things of that sort, but they were interested in design on every level so that they preferred their little Sony TV and their Polaroid camera to art that they considered, quote, too expressionistic. Right. And also, obviously, coming from the Bauhaus, that sort of practical form of art, too, is is absolutely essential to their worldview and which they continue throughout their lives as well, didn't they? It was everyday life that interested them, most of all, and art as part of everyday life. And they cultivated every aspect of their own lives. There wasn't anything that wasn't prized and thought about carefully, whether it was a selection of bed linens or what they did on a holiday. Right. In terms of Senegal, then, this is not a bolt out of the blue, this museum, is it? Because you've had links to Senegal for a number of years, haven't you? Yes. In about the year 2000, I went to Senegal for the first time, simply by coincidence, uh, because of someone I met at the time that I was installing an Annie Albers show at the Musée des Arts Décolatifs working happily with Guy Olenti. Anyway, I met someone and ended up going to Senegal with a group of doctors who were providing medical care. And I was terribly impressed, Ben, with the effectiveness of what they were doing. There was no nonsense. Everything they were doing was direct and having a great impact on the local community. And that effectiveness appealed to me so much that I thought it would be nice to raise some American money for the French organization. I asked the other trustees of the Albers Foundation if they agreed with me that we could embark on projects in Senegal. They said yes, understanding as I did why this was consistent with the Albers' values, and we were off and running. We have supported rural medical centers, We helped build a maternity unit on the far side of the Gambia River in a village where there's no electricity or running water. We created a wonderful artist retreat called Thread with a marvelous building by Toshiko Mori in a small village called Sintian. And there are two artist studios to which painters and artists come from all over the world. We created a school in a village with another building by Toshiko Mori, a Muslim village where previously there had been no education other than strictly Quranic education. And creating that school was very much in the Albers tradition. Joseph had started as a teacher in a one-room school. Education was his lifelong passion. Now we built a large two-room school for 220 girls and boys. I emphasize that because it was a breakthrough to have girls in the school, something that we wouldn't have built it otherwise. And we most recently completed with the wonderful architect Manuel Hertz hospital buildings, pediatric and maternity units at Tombacunda Hospital. The Alberses were great supporters of Yale New Haven Hospital. Now we were supporting a hospital where the needs were urgent in a very different part of the world. To what extent is there a sort of direct connection in terms of the design of the buildings that you've talked about with the Alberses, either principles or even aesthetic? In all those buildings, there are direct relationships 
First of all, it's very good architecture that works effectively and that is extremely practical and built to accommodate local conditions. It's well-engineered, but there are specific motifs from Annie and Joseph's art that show up. So Joseph designed a wonderful brick fireplace in the 1950s. The designs for that fireplace have been recreated on doors in the medical center at Thread. The designs that Annie incorporated into certain prints and textiles have been reinterpreted in wooden doors all over Tambacunda Hospital. It's quite extraordinary to see some of these direct connections. Indeed. So let's talk about this new museum then. You're calling it Betby. Explain that name. Betby is the Waloff term meaning the eye, and not in the sense of I as in ego or I as in me, but I as in the marvelous instrument with which we see. And vision, of course, artistic vision, but all vision was the most important issue to Annie and Joseph. Right, exactly. And what you're planning to show there is multifaceted, isn't it? But first of all, let's just talk about one of the most intriguing elements that I've spotted in the sort of literature so far, which is that you're considering showing repatriated objects, that is, objects from Western collections that have been returned to Africa. Tell us more about that. Well, one is known for the past few years, of course, that objects that were essentially removed from Africa are now leaving Western museums. But there's been a great question about where they should go. We're putting up a building that, first of all, has the right climate controls and the secure conditions necessary to assure the good health of those objects. We would be happy to be a way station, not necessarily a permanent collection, for objects that are being returned to Africa. We heard early in the conception of Bet B about a major collection of African art being offered to a very important museum. I'm not at liberty to say the name, but the museum realized that they were unable to accept the gift. There were too many questions of provenance of the 800 African objects, but they have been looking for a way of accepting the gift under other circumstances. And we're negotiating to have Bet B be the home for those 800 objects. This would make enormous sense. And of course, this was a sort of fundamental element, clearly, in Mariam Kammerer's ideas about the museum because she talks in the press release about this about the plundering of objects from Africa into western museums so it seems to me that the architect herself is building an institution with that idea at its very heart not only with the idea of showing those objects but great concern as to how they're presented i told her that from the beginning, that I was opposed to the idea of plexiglass boxes around things, that to me it makes African objects seem imprisoned. We can't really see them, we can't really feel them in the sense of their function. And Mariam was delighted to hear this because she feels the same way. And so not only would we want African objects presented, but We want them shown in such a way that one relates to them as objects of everyday use. And we have already acquired, just on our own, some marvelous objects, from beautiful knife handles to wonderful Nigerian textiles and other things, and a lot of African art from the Congo School, which is something altogether different. It's 20th century. But the nuances of presentation are something of great importance to Mariam. As an African woman, of course, she is particularly related to the cultural concepts behind the museum. Indeed, and she's from Niger, and of course we're talking about Senegal, and therefore it seems to me also from what you just said that this is a pan-African museum. It's a museum for African contemporary culture, is that right? That is absolutely correct. I mean, our emphasis would be on Senegal if possible. But among other things, we're interested in art from the African diaspora because very little of it is shown in Africa. 
And we don't even know where the artists come from historically, but we already have some not major works, but very beautiful works by artists like Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence. And this belongs to the African diaspora. One of the interesting aspects of all this is, obviously, as a North American institution and working with artists who were born in Europe, obviously there might be accusations of potential kind of colonial mentality behind it. To what extent are you guarding against that or acting against that? On a recent trip to the area where we want to build Bet B, I turned to Mariam on the second or third day and said to her, but what can I do to overcome the reality that this project was conceived by a white man from the United States? And I don't want to be seen as imposing anything on another culture or in any way, God forbid, having a sense of superiority as I do so. And Mariam looked at me very seriously and she said, well, Nick, you're asking the question, is 80% of getting there? And I was greatly reassured to hear her say that, but I find it very difficult to overcome, and perhaps one shouldn't overcome it, but not to be aware of the reality of the truth, which is that I come from a different culture. My economic situation is different from that of the people whom I hope to serve. And one can't be too careful in overcoming any taint of colonialism. The doctors with whom I initially went to Senegal, I discovered to be, by my standards, somewhat colonialistic, superior acting in their approach. And I detest that. We are there to help other people and work with our Senegalese colleagues very much at their direction, although Bet B is our idea. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it seems absolutely essential, therefore, that Mariam is directly working with local people in terms of the building of the museum, as in using their craft expertise. Mariam is eager to spend time on site and in the region understanding the specific building skills that are local to the region, uh, understanding the materials that are indigenous. When we built thread, Toshiko Mori was very aware of the tradition of weaving thatched roofs and honored that tradition in her building. And indeed, Mariam is just beginning to learn what is produced in the area of Kaolak in central Senegal. Right. And tell me about that area more generally, because there are World Heritage sites all around, right? Well, that's extraordinary, Ben. For 20 years, I've been going to Senegal two or three times a year, and I have a great interest in ancient megaliths. You're speaking to me at the moment in southwest Ireland, where we have wonderful megaliths, and I had no idea that they existed in Senegal. And about three years ago, I met an anthropologist from Yale, a professor called Rod McIntosh, who started to tell me about the megaliths in Senegal. I was gobsmacked and discovered with enough research that almost hidden, there are superb stone circles, absolutely wonderful creations, some of which are part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site, in what's called the Senegambian region between Senegal and the Gambia. On this most recent trip, Mariam and I went on what was my first viewing of some stone circles that were deeply moving, very difficult to find, I should add. And as part of Bet B, we always want to have a display related to the stone circles and offer the possibility of excursions for groups of people to see them. Because here we are, in many ways, in the cradle of civilization, in a place where beautiful art was created in about 500 BC, and too few people know about it. Now, the thorny issue of funding, how's it going to be paid for? I don't know. I'm hoping 
that everyone listening to this podcast will then say, oh my God, this is a world-changing project, something very beautiful that has to be realized, and that they will give generously. We've begun with funding from the Albers Foundation. We've been able to fund the travel, the search, uh, the search for an architect, and all of our early expenses, but we still need to find loyal patrons. We do already have a potentially very generous patron who's come forward, and we're hoping for more. Right. And of course, in the past, so for instance, with Thread, you were able to sell one of Joseph's homage to the squares in order to help fund that, weren't you? Is is that a likely possibility? Are there works by Annie and Joseph that you might sell? Well, in that case of Thread, David's Werner Gallery put on a wonderful exhibition of art sold for the benefit of Thread. And a work that we gave by Joseph was part of the show, but other gallery artists gave marvelous art that was sold to help create the endowment for Thread. We won't sell anything, at least it isn't our intention at the moment, to sell anything specifically for Bet B. The Albers Foundation is already doing an enormous amount for Bet B, and we have a number of other obligations in America and in Senegal. So our hope, however, that there could eventually be an auction with artists giving for support of Bet B would be wonderful. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's been a great pleasure. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Today at the British Library in London, the exhibition Gold Opens, bringing together 50 of the most glistering and opulent items from the library's collection. The largest object in the show is a decree issued in the court of the Indian city of Lucknow in 1789 to a British woman, Sophia Plowden. I spoke to Annabel Gallup, the co-curator of Gold, about the manuscript. Annabel, we're talking about a marvellous object. Tell us what it is. It's a firman, which is a decree issued by the Mughal Emperor of India in 1789 to an English woman called Sophia Plowden, and he ennobles her. He makes her a begum, the equivalent of a dame, with a wonderful title, Bilkis Uzaman, the Sheba of her age. Uh-huh. So tell us more about Sophia to begin with. Who was she? She was married to an East India Company officer who was stationed in India at the time. She had lots of children during the time she was in India, but she had a great interest in music and she attended a lot of parties with other Indian aristocrats and nobles where there was a lot of singing and dancing and she loved the tunes and she collected them and wrote them down in European notation and published them to great acclaim. That seems to me, knowing traditional Indian music a little, that it must have been terrifically difficult. Aren't the kind of musical notation and the forms of music in the West compared to India very different? Yes. In fact, the difficult thing today is to try and reconstruct what the music really sounded like from Sophia's publications. But the point is, she appreciated them. There was obviously a great exchange of ideas and interests at the time. And it was because of her interests in Indian culture and Indian music that she was given this wonderful honour by the Mughal emperor in 1789 and to confirm it he presented her with an enormous decree which is one of the stars of our new show gold at the british library so before we get into the specifics of the object i'd like to ask about the inevitable assumptions that we may make when we hear the story you just told are about colonialism and about the power relationships can you shed more light on that Yes, I mean, this decree came about at a time when the British were in India, initially just as trading partners, but as time went on in a greater and greater position of power. And in fact, it was the British who brought the Mughal Empire to an end in 1859. Mm -hmm. But this decree was issued in 1789. It's a very interesting time because the Mughal Empire was one of the greatest empires in the world in the 16th and 17th centuries. But inevitably, there was a period of slow decay, which was partly caused by the encroaching British colonial presence there. 
And the interesting thing is that in the British Library, we have a lot of decrees from the earlier Mughal emperors. Some of them are very famous, like Akbar, and their decrees are very utilitarian looking. They're plain writing on paper, but incredibly powerful political documents. But as the empire got slightly less powerful, in a sort of inverted way, the decrees got more and more sumptuous, more gilded, covered in gold and wonderful decoration, but actually reflecting a lessening of imperial power. So this decree that was issued to Sophia Plowden is a wonderfully sumptuous item, but it actually was created at a time of waning of power. Can you describe this extraordinary document then? I will. It's the biggest thing in our exhibition. It's over two metres high and the document itself is written on paper and the background of the paper, apart from the writing, is completely covered in gold leaf, so it just shines out at you. But the document itself is then placed on a bed of red silk brocade, which has been stamped with beautiful um, paisley patterns. So the document itself has the text of the Firman granting Sophia this decree. It also has the great seal of the Emperor Shah Alam II. The Mughal seal was extremely important and highly symbolic and significant because it named all the previous emperors of India going back to the great Prince Timur, whom we know as Tamerlane, the ancestor of the Mughal dynasty. And the actual insignia is written in calligraphy in gold, in Arabic square calligraphy. So it's a very impressive document with so much to look at. You know, there are lots and lots of different parts of it, different colours, but the overall impression is one of this enormous sheet of gold. Was it common to have paper set within textiles or does this make it all the more great in the sense that it's an unusual combination? Um, By the time of this emperor Shah Alam II, yes, we've seen other decrees of his and they're quite often set on on textiles, but it's very rare to find one which is in such brilliant condition as ours is. We have another one in the British Library, which I have to say is in tatters, and so to have this opportunity to see this one, which is looking almost pristine, it's worth coming to the exhibition for this alone. Indeed, yeah, and tell us about some of the decorations then on the one hand you have pattern but you have also individual insignia don't you yes so nearly all royal mogul decrees like this would have at the very top of the document they would have a religious phrase i mean just as in christian documents you would have normally in, in the name of god or something at the top so the decree itself is written in persian which was the official language of the mogul empire but the religious phrases are written in arabic of course because arabic is the language of islam and so while the text of the document itself is written in Persian in black ink. The heading at the top, the religious phrase, is actually written in Arabic and in gold, so in gold ink, and in a particular very stylized square form of calligraphy. And next to the seal is a similar square piece of calligraphy. It's called the Tugra, so it's not the emperor's signature, but it's another religious phrase which was unique to that emperor and functioned as his signature. So he has two symbols side by side, his black seal and his Tugra. And then within the red textile, you have a what looks like an umbrella. What is that? That's right. So if you look actually even on the document itself, you'll see that above the seal is drawn a little an umbrella in pigments and, and also in gold on the document. And then at the very top, above the paper document, on the silk, is another umbrella and actually drawn in colours on the silk itself. And it's a symbol of royalty. So it's a symbol of the emperor. Right. And now tell us about the provenance of this, because was it given to Sophia or how did it come to be in the British Library? I have to confess, I don't know how it came to be in the British Library. It was given to Sophia, it was brought back to England, and it came into the India Office Library in the last century. And I'm not sure whether it actually came from Sophia herself or from her family. But Sophia was married to an East India Company official, Richard Plowden. And so we have quite a lot of her papers here in the British Library. And is she regarded as a curiosity or is she a significant figure, Sophia, in terms of how Indian culture has been interpreted in this country? Well, I mean, she's been dug out from obscurity, thanks well, partly to my colleague Ursula Sims-Williams, who's the curator for Persian, but also to Dr Kathleen Schofield at King's College, who is a musical historian of India, who's really worked on Sophia and has worked on reconstructing her published airs, which she transcribed for harpsichord, but Kathleen Schofield has redis 
discovered the original lyrics in Urdu or in Hindustani, which would have been sung originally, and trying to put them together. And so at the time, in the late 18th century, she was very well known because of all her publications. But since then, of course, less so, and hopefully she's been rehabilitated now. So lastly, tell us more about the gold exhibition. Does it cross ages and continents? All of that. Gold brings together 50 of the most spectacular golden manuscripts in the British Library from 20 countries, documents written in 17 languages, and it spans 1,500 years. Our oldest items date from the 5th to 6th centuries. We've got two gold plates from Myanmar and Buddhist chants in the Pali language, inscribed on actual pieces of gold. It really does reflect the global reach of the British Library itself. So the galleries here will be glowing. Annabel, thank you very much. Thank you. Gold is at the British Library in London until the 2nd of October. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Ben, Nick and Annabelle. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.